When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, he did. He made a list, so you want to like honor he didn't the didn't even fact go through the first page. Of he did list. the. I know, I know, but I felt like you don't want him to. First page. I only got through ten items. No, no, that's no, right. It's, no, it's that's fine. It, it, you, you, these things aren't necessarily doctrinaire. If you know, we may start with one subject and end with a different one, and okay. we may never get to it. But yeah, the, uh, I'm still trying to figure out how best to present it because you don't want to scare people away by telling them there's a lot of work, but. And you won't, but I also, I think, well, I, need, I, think I need to start emphasizing what do that, you like, you don't have to do much. What do you tell them? Um, it's, I mean, I, I, like, we'll kick around, come up with some ideas, come up with a topic that works. And, you know, if you have a list, if you have, in some cases, people want to come in and spend an hour and a half talking about Russ Meyer, in which case, fantastic. But for the most part, we felt like, you know, if you just sort of throw together a casual list along a theme, we can... We can Maybe talk on that. Maybe pet peeves you want to get or off pet the anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got a couple of interesting things coming up. And um, uh, now someone did talk about Russ Meyer, right? Did yeah, yeah. Miguel Arteta. Miguel, that our first one, first first one we did. Who is that? Miguel Arteta. Okay. Which yeah. that was fun because he's not the guy you associate with that kind of film. Uh. He's a, a passionate. And Russ kept out. coming up. He actually has come up frequently. He does come up. There are oh. several things that come up. We should have a duck. Yes. It's like <laughs> Huh. Ed, 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 the Edward Ducks. Edward and uh, Russ Meyer seem to come up very frequently. Edward. Edward yeah. didn't come up yesterday once. No, but we were talking about cinematography. <laughs> and we did, well, we, yeah, we were talking about black and white cinematography. That's you know, true. Think it, 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 there was a chance. And there tombstones falling over. You what? Tombstones falling over. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I just get worried that people think there's. And then we have, you know, Ileana Douglas came in and did her 10 favorite scenes for movies, but she had been working on this list. For five years. She's got her own podcast. And she okay. goes out of her way to research every single person who shows up on her podcast so that she can ask them, you know, uh, informed questions. And it's yeah. it's it's exhausting. I've done it. It's like just watching her work. It's like. You can imagine hard. the work she you know? Yeah. Like, we pull it off. We're, we're, we're inherently lazy. <laughs> so when he suggested this whole podcast idea, it was like, well, okay, you, you be the interviewer. I'll show up. And, you know, I'll chime in occasionally. But I don't want to do any work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it all it all and lives and dies on you. So, Uh-oh. <laughs> no pressure. You have to be more interesting than we are. But um, <clears throat> that, we, won't be, that won't be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Um, Why don't you start? Sure. We, we play music. Hi, I'm Josh Olson, and you're listening to The Movies That Made Me, the official podcast of Trailers From Hell. Although I realize at the end I talk about, I say you wrote, composed, and performed the music. Of course, you didn't write it at all, but... Uh, it's it's that's that's bad. That's my bad. You transmogrified it. I should. We'll we'll, we'll re-record the uh, the theme was uh, transmogrified. Oh, let's do that after this. I think that's good. Transmogrifier. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, we are here, very uh, excited. We're at the with uh, the great Ernest Dickerson, um, cinematographer, director, uh, bon vivant, um, <laughs> raconteur. Uh, I mean, director of films like Juice and Demon Knight, and um, uh, you know, I've 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 known you for a while and been a fan for a while. I just went to check the IMDb this morning to make sure there wasn't anything huge I was missing on. And, and you really have, you've directed on every TV show that I watch and love. Um, it's kind of nuts. He's and constantly working. Really, if all he, you've he's done the is the wire, of all I, would, I would bow down before you. Um, cinematographer, of course. Uh, um, Brother from Another Planet and Malcolm X yeah. and, and the eighth or ninth greatest movie ever made, uh, Do the Right Thing. Um, but we're here with Ernest Dickerson. Hello. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. This is cool. This is nice. Uh, yes, our giant, spacious recording studio. Yeah. It's a state-of-the-art, uh, massive facility that... Um, it's like a really geeky living room <laughs> with equipment. I want to paint the sound... What are those called? Baffles. Baffles. I'm an idiot. Yeah, I want to paint pictures on them. Like, uh, how, how will that help the podcast? It'll help me. Oh, it'll just, it, you have to stare at it them. Will, it will. Do you remember those... Um, uh, about the same age, I think. When Marvel Comics did those day glow posters of all their superheroes, mm. we were a little, and they had like the you know, I remember day glow posters. I don't know if I remember the day glow posters of superheroes. They were they were awesome. They were fantastic. I think they were I black remember, light. Yeah, I remember the Zodiacs. <laughs> uh, okay, yes, the Zodiac yes. day glow posters. Those are the ones that, that come immediately to mind. I don't know the face. So, so they did day glow posters of. Of Hulk and yeah, Hulk Thor and Spider Man and, and Doctor Strange was a big one. Back, okay, you know, back back then, not to date myself. You're not dating yourself. <laughs> These characters are now more famous <laughs> yeah, than they know. ever were. Yeah. Exactly. So, and which is a nice segue because we're here to talk about superhero movies, which we all love. Nope. Okay, I'm getting blank stares. Um, well, you, you love them. <laughs> I, I do not love them. <laughs> well, then what are we uh, talking about? Them? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, uh, Ernest, you're just, you've just wrapped up on a TV show you were working on. Do you want to? Yeah, I just wrapped the two final episodes of The Purge. Fantastic. And you... So it was, it was like prepping and shooting a movie in 15 days. Mm-hmm. Does it all take so. place at night? All takes, well, there's some flashbacks to daytime. And luckily, 90% of it takes place in one structure at night so we we could do a lot of day Uh, for night yeah so it was okay but it was it was a it was a wild ride shooting down in new orleans you know uh in august in new orleans have you ever been in new orleans in august you know every time you walk outside your glasses steam up you know and it's just hot and humid and the air never moves but uh but aside from that you had a great time yeah oh it was a fun shoot that's actually why i left philadelphia it's the Uh, same it's the summer philadelphia is definitely yeah yeah, well, it's the East Coast. The East Coast, you know, because yeah. I'm from New Jersey. Oh, okay. And you know, I don't miss the humidity back there. Which, which exit? Uh, <laughs> Newark. Newark. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I knew that, that about you. Yes, of course. Yeah. That's what yeah. yeah. Various exits we kept moving. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, first it was well, growing up. It was Newark, and then later on, my mother moved uh, outside of Elizabeth, New Jersey. So it was Roselle. Um, and here you are. So, uh, you, we, we had a conversation, talked about kind of what you wanted to, to run through and you had kind of an interesting, uh, take. We were sort of going to talk about the movies that made you and you wanted to talk about the movies and the people and the, so you sort of brought in a list of, yeah. am I right or what? Yeah. I was <laughs> just, you know, I was just thinking, you know, stuff that, that, 
that inspires me and continues to inspire me and has inspired me through the years, I guess, you know, and uh, I mean, I mean, I, I thought that might be a little bit more diverse and interesting than, you know, maybe trying to do two hours on Nigel Neal or something like that. You know, <laughs> I don't know that much. I know a lot about Nigel Neal, but not that much, but, uh, but, uh, you know, just inspirations. Yeah. You know, stuff great. that I always well, look that's, at. That's, that's sort of the, at the core of what we're about, I guess. And yeah. if we can turn someone who's listening to us on to something they haven't seen before, that's uh, even, even better. I guess it's the sort of the trailer from hell mandate in some mm-hmm. ways. <clears throat> but yeah, you want to just jump in, start with your, start with your least favorite favorite. My, well, <laughs> my favorite favorite is 2001. That's uh that's my favorite film. I, I, I think that's a film that always, that never ceases to amaze me. You know, I mean, you know, there's been so much science fiction that's come out the past few years, but I think something that a lot of, uh, a lot of the cinematic science fiction has lost is just the feeling of awe that you get when you, you know, when you're out there, when you're in the universe and, uh, 2001 got it. I thought gravity got it. Um, I thought Interstellar got it to a certain extent, but it's almost like the universe is being taken for granted now that we can, you know, really present it in very interesting ways. But 2001 was the first film that really uh, did that to me. And, and it was, uh, I, it was one of those films that I loved looking at because every time I went and saw it, I saw something new, something different, you know, and, and even to this day, you know, and, um, do you remember the, I mean, where, where, where were you the first time you saw it? Was I first it? saw it in New York in night when it first came out. Oh, wow. Yeah. I saw it at the Cinerama theater in, uh, in New York. I forget the name of the theater, but, but I saw it in Cinerama and, uh, did I get it the first time? No. Do you get it now? Yeah. I think oh, I, okay. I think I do. <laughs> and actually I think it's probably one of the most spiritual films I've ever seen. Mm. If any film was going to be spiritual, I think that's probably it. You know, I, I, you know, me being a lapsed Catholic, you know, I, there are no lapsed Catholics. <laughs> you only think you're a lapsed, <laughs> and that comes back to the guilt comes back. Grab you. The guilt comes back. <laughs> I remember all those people trooping out of the Exorcist saying, "I'm going to go back to church now." <laughs> oh, uh, I uh, thank God I was out of high school by that time because I was in Catholic high school with uh, the Christian Brothers of Ireland, and uh, like a distillery, doesn't it? <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think they probably had a couple of those. Yeah. You could actually smell it on their breath a couple of times. But, um, um, but yeah, 2001 just, uh, it still amazes me. And I was really happy to go see the, the, the re-release of it in 70 that came out a couple of months ago. And, uh, no, the, I want to have this conversation with a, with a cinematographer in the room. Now. Do you do want, or I, did, Joe you, has did a, you notice anything different? <laughs> about the way it looked uh i thought the print was in sometimes the print was in pretty bad shape oh. there, was, there was some watermarks and it must not have been a new print i saw mm. some watermarks on the print um you know so, there's a, a lot of controversy about the color scheme mm-hmm. that uh chris nolan decided to chris Reeves on it oh did he um and uh, there's some people who it, it's sort of a teal and yellow version of the picture, which if you see them side by side, is pretty apparent, mm. which is which is the way it used to look, and now the way it does look in these new in these new seventy millimeter prints that they made. The the cursed teal. Yeah, teal is yeah. for some reason is broken out like a plague, hasn't it? It's got to pass, right? 
We have to find I another like color. To think so, but it's 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 faddish <clears throat> now. It's it's just a color that people like to see, and they even they they're even going back to old Disney cartoons and stuff and changing the yeah. the colors. There's a version of Pinocchio that's all teal. Um, Peter Pan that they just and if you combine them with the way they compare them with the way they looked originally on when they were first released on video, it's like just somebody just decided to change the whole look of it. What about this 4K release of 2001 that's coming out? In a couple of months on Blu-ray. I don't know which, but I'm presuming it's the new Probably the version. new one, right? The teal look. I would think so. Because, um, I mean, you know, because it was, you know, the 2001 that I remember is very, very pristine. It's a very neutral color balance. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a little bit of warmth on the skin tone on Cara Dullier, you know, when he was... Uh, when he was talking. So there was a little bit of warmth that I remember seeing from as far back as I can remember into the 70s. But other than that, it was a fairly neutral color balance. But teal, huh? Mm. Well, 4K is big now because uh, Superman, I think, is coming out this week, the Richard Donner version in 4K. In 4K. With, um, I guess, Are they gonna make I guess that it runs teal? an extra hour. <laughs> They're going to make that teal? Oh, that I have no idea. <clears throat> same same yeah. cinematographer. Yeah. Jeffrey Ellsworth, same guy. Same guy shot it. Oh, my God, that's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's not here to time it. No. Uh, so how many how many times have you seen uh 2001 oh god i don't even know um in the 70s when i was in college it was it was it was the movie to you know smoke a joint and go see you know um and it kept coming up in 70 millimeter screenings uh i remember there was a theater that had a uh a retrospective of 70 millimeter films and that's the first time i saw dr Zhivago in 70 and it was a beautiful print and a week later they showed lawrence of arabia and the print looked terrible it was just, double feature it was just totally magenta no oh uh, a week later oh we week got, later. okay yeah. that's, that's a long double <laughs> that's a long feature. Double that's, that's, feature. That's, that's too much <laughs> that's too much so uh but i mean you know we used to show midnight showings and 70 millimeter showings all during the 70s when i was in school so uh i don't know it's anybody's guess close to 100 times maybe and and do you remember i mean obviously the first time you saw it as you say you you, you didn't you didn't quote unquote get it but i mean was there was there a moment of, of revelation or was it simply just over time it started to well you know what really what, what i think really helped me was that not long after i saw the film i i got the book i got the novelization mm-hmm. that arthur c clark did and um and that really put it all in in perspective you know how he how he uh how moon watcher became the the most powerful person in his world at that time you know because he had this weapon this bone weapon and and arthur c clark used the same words for the star child at the end you know now he was master of the universe what would he do next well you know the movie uh originally had narration yeah i know and um i did not w- yes there was originally mm-hmm. there was a narration did and, not it was, know and it was a documentary section in the beginning and uh and uh Kubrick decided at the end uh there was a lot of there's a fascinating book uh called um odyssey odyssey yeah it's really uh, good. about the making of this picture it's a, it's a big thick book uh and it's very very detailed I and mean, before there was a Jer- jerome eagle um, um the paperback making, the, making, mm-hmm. of the making of which yeah. was everybody thumbed through it and it got all you know yeah. dog-eared and stuff but this book is much more detailed and um really fascinating because it was not 
he was fraught when he was making the movie. He didn't think it was going to work. They mm. had a terrible preview. They had a terrible premiere. Um, it was, you know, yeah, that MGM was going to write it off. The story about the premiere, like afterwards, nobody wanted to talk to him. No, people, people were walking <laughs> they were avoiding out. Him. They walked out in the middle because uh, they thought it was so boring. And yeah. that's when he went back and cut 20 minutes out of it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the most fascinating thing for me as a filmmaker was seeing that he was making it up as he went. You yeah. know, we always think of, of Kubrick as this, this calculating guy who has everything, everything, everything figured out. He's in total know? control, but, but this movie was, a lot of it was sort of improvised, even considering the money that was being spent. And some of the stuff that's in the movie was shot actually long before, years before mm -hmm. the movie, uh, as sort of um, special effects. Some of the effects stuff, attempts yeah. Attempts and things in garages. The star fields. And stuff. Yeah, right. uh, yeah it's, no. It's really a fascinating, and, and, if, and, and just the, the idea of movies as a collaborative effort, um, this real, I mean, yeah, of course it's Kubrick's movie, and of course he maneuvered the credits a little bit, as he often did, but, but the fact is that when you read this book, you realize how many people were responsible for this movie and how it wouldn't have been the movie that it is if it weren't for the fact that he was surrounded by all these incredible people yeah. whom mm -hmm. he drove crazy. I mean, he, he really drove them hard, but, and, he knew, and he knew what he thought he wanted except when he didn't. Uh, but, and in the end, it's, of course, his movie. But when you, look at, when you read this book, you really get a sense of uh, the complexity of making a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I mean, it was inspiring for me because, you know, I always tell a lot of young filmmakers, don't be afraid to not have all the answers. You know, and don't be afraid to say, I don't know. And somebody says, well, how are we going to do this? I don't know, but we'll figure it out. And, you know, um, and this was, he didn't know what he was doing. He knew, he had a general idea of where he wanted to go. Um, his concept of the film was different than Arthur C. Clarke's, oh, yeah. you know. And I thought the fascinating story was Daniel Richter, who played uh, Moonwatcher, you know. Because it was interesting, because he was a functioning heroin addict. You know, and um, the whole idea that heroin addicts in England, at least at that time, were registered, or you could, you could register with the government and function as a heroin addict and still function in society. And he did, and Kubrick uh, realized that he needed this guy, and he made it possible for him to do what he had to do. Mm. And I think he's still with us. Right there. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, out of 2001, I think we've talked about this too. I, I, it's one of those movies I keep going back to and hoping it will happen for me. And it, 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 it does in bits and pieces, but I've never had that, that kind of revelatory moment with it that, that I feel like everybody else on the freaking planet has had it. Um, maybe there's something like, I'm such a slave to narrative. I know it's like, well, that's, <clears throat> I mean, that actually was, was one of the things that I thought was so interesting that, that, um, he took that narration out of it. He took, <clears throat> He took all the verbosity out of it. He took the whole literary aspect of it and was really going for a purely visual experience, yeah. you know, a real, you know, and real that's one, of, that's one of the sources of its fascination. And it's also one of the reasons that pe people who don't like the movie don't like it because they have to think. You can't watch the movie and hey, you no. have to think. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I, I, I didn't mean necessarily. Oh, no, no, that's all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's no coming back. It's on tape. The, um, yeah, I don't know what it is. I mean, I can I can sit and stare at a painting in an abstract for hours, not hours, but you know, but there's something about it in film <clears throat> where I'm just so I, 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 
it's hard for me to get past the hump when there's not that kind of narrative through that I can try. I don't know what it is. Spoken like a writer. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I grant you it's a, it's a limitation and uh, uh, it's, it's all my fault. Um, there are plenty of films, I will say. They're terrible and I don't like them, but 2001 is one that just, it's, it's all me. It's all my yeah. fault. But, um, well, so what's next on your list? Yes. What is next on my list? Um, inspiration. You know, you know, a lot of times, you know, when I'm prepping a, uh, a show, you know, even, even TV shows, I, I get my inspiration for TV shows for movies. So, you know, I look at stuff, but the films that Alfred Hitchcock did with the cinematographer, Robert Burks, I really, I thought that was really, really great collaboration. It's the only cinematographer that he stuck with through several films. The first film they did was Strangers on the Train. Mm. Last film they did was uh, Marnie. He he died. He and his wife were killed in a fire. Did he do consistently? He, that? Yeah, no, except no, except no, for no. except for Psycho. He didn't do Psycho. Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. sure. John so that was essentially done like a television show. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But um, but it's interesting because I think it was with Robert Burks that Hitchcock's attitude towards color started started changing. You know, he started using color more thematically as he as he went along, especially in something like Vertigo, which mm. is which is my yeah. favorite Hitchcock film. But using color thematically in that um, was something that I guess he got from working with Burks and. Uh, you know, even even the the stuff that they did in black and white, like uh, the Wrong Man, is just a beautiful, beautiful piece of cinema. Yeah. And uh, and you know, I'm always looking at them. I th I think more so those films because there was a consistency to them than the earlier films that he did. I mean, I love Notorious, and uh, Ted Teslaff, I think was a cinematographer mm -hmm. on Notorious, who also became a director. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I always look at those films, I think, for inspiration. Uh, and um, uh, yeah. Did he do uh, um, Rear Window? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, that's that. I don't know why. That, that's just the one that obsesses me the most, the one that I go back to all the time and just everything. It's, it's just, you could eat that movie. It's just so yeah. beautiful to look at. And uh, have you seen the, somebody, have you seen the thing they did, the, the guy CG'd? Uh, all the shots of the view out of his window into one big panorama of the the yard. I think I did see that. It's it's pretty amazing. You seen it, Joe? Yeah. And yeah. it's also it's you know the whole movie takes place in the set. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a phenomenal movie. Yeah, I just I yeah. there's something about it that just constantly calls to me, and I love things that are contained, and but it creates this entire beautiful world. Of, yeah. And a, and a lighting challenge for Burks because that was, oh, I'm sure that yeah. was uh, that was old that wasn't three strip Technicolor but that was still old older color stock which was pretty slow and uh, each one of those apartments that you could see into had to be lit you know and each one of those apartments in the courtyard and then being able to see from Jimmy Stewart's place out there because there's a lot of connecting shots going from yeah. looking out the window to inside. Yeah. Actually, what's the moment? I feel like there's a moment where he wakes up and it's like late afternoon, it's hot, and he's kind of sweaty, and it just suddenly clicked with me. It actually reminds me. It's one of the few times I've sat in a movie and felt like I was in a hot city, and it suddenly dawned on me that the best well, the movie best, ever made the, about The best moment is, is Grace Kelly's Oh, introduction. Her introduction. Yeah, it starts outside, 
you know, yeah, and you hear and you hear somebody practicing on the music, the musicians practicing. Yeah. And I think it's uh, it's got that late afternoon lighting, you know, that warm lighting, and it comes in and finds him sleeping, and the shadow moves up over him, and he opens up his eyes. Yeah. And then and, that slow motion kiss. Oh, that's man. Like, yeah, no, that's amazing. I remember when they re- finally revived that film in the eighties. Yeah. And I went and saw it in the theater, and this was like not long after she died. And when it cuts to that close-up of her moving in on him, the gasp through the audience was was Man. so so palpable. It was it was crazy, and you know just just love that, you know just love that shot how it goes. You know he just step frames it I guess on the kiss and stuff. Yeah, no, it's a fun film. And, and well, I was just it, it suddenly hit me that if, if I wonder were you did you ever consciously think of that when you were shooting uh, Do the Right Thing? Kind of the, because there's something about the quality with which it catches like the urban sun and heat, and that I hadn't seen in a movie before, um, in Rear Window. That of course, do the right thing is just permeated with. Um, yeah, well, do the right thing since it was you know the hottest day of the summer, and I yeah. and I use a lot of hard light in it. Um, so and I used arcs. You know, I didn't I didn't use many HMIs because I I. For the first time in my career, I had to duplicate sunlight, and I felt the, the the truest way to do that was to use arcs. And so we bought arcs out of uh, out of mothballs and had to uh, had to train the electrical crew. Uh, my gaffer actually had training sessions for the, the electricians to train them how to trim the arcs and mm-hmm. how to keep their eye on them and everything. And it uh, and I thought it worked pretty good. But yeah, it's yeah. that it's you know the hard light um, and light rear window. Um, do the right thing was pretty saturated film. Yeah. So, but yeah, that that New York hot summer on the fire escapes. Yeah. You know, he they captured that with the older couple with the with the dog and the fire. Yeah, escape. sleeping, sleeping on the fire out escape. on the fire escape. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. You know. There's not a lot of movies that have communicated that kind of, or actually feel the temperature around me. Yeah. Um, it's, but that was that that was something. Yeah. yeah. And, that was more of a New York thing. Yep. <laughs> you know, but uh, I didn't have I didn't have fire escapes in the housing projects that I lived in. But um, slightly artificial fire. How did you escape? Down the stairs. Yeah. Or up or upstairs. Yeah, we didn't have fire escapes. Mm. <clears throat> you know, they were like six stories high buildings. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, so what's next? What do you got? Oh man. Okay, <laughs> we're going through these, aren't we? <laughs> Any film by Orson Welles. Okay. Um, I'm, I don't know. Orson is one of those guys I, I grew up with, and he's still somebody that never ceases to amaze me. Um, Do you have a favorite that isn't the obvious one that you're not afraid to say in public? You know, I think, uh, <laughs> I think they change, but my favorite for the past several months has been Chimes at Midnight. I love that film. Um, Have you seen the new one? No, not yet. Not yet. You see it? No. 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 I thought you... you, uh, No. Larry. The other side of the window. Oh, Larry Karaszewski. I was confused. Not me. (laughs) No, the other side of the window. I'm dying to see it. You know, see uh, what they were able to do with it. But, um, you know, always, you know, always been a big fan of his stuff. Uh, But... uh, the the recent restoration of Chimes at Midnight on Blu-ray, the Criterion did, 
is absolutely gorgeous. And mm. and um, and that was a movie that was really hard to see in a DM yeah. print yeah. Mm -hmm. or, or just see at all. You know, I've, yeah, I think I've ever seen it on video. Now it's abs it's, it's absolutely gorgeous, and. And it's interesting, you know, how Wells acted in it because, you know, one of his most heartbreaking performances, you know, um, when the king says to him, you know, I know you're not old man, you know, you know, towards the end. And just the look on his face is just amazing. It sends, it brings tears to my eyes, hmm. you know. But uh, yeah, it's just such a beautifully done film um, and a lot of fun. And I, I just, you know, I got frame blow ups on my on my cell phone from you know, just from stuff I shot off the T V, just compositions that right. you know. Who who was the DP on that? Uh Evan Richard. Okay. A French guy who also did uh the trial. The trial. Yeah. 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 I for me it's Touch of Evil's the one that uh I saw it sort of late in my Wells education and and Kane just never did anything for me. I always felt like I was studying it instead of enjoying it. And then somehow touch of evil taught me mm -hmm. how to see Orson Welles. I can't even describe it because I saw Kane after that. And all of a sudden it, it worked for me emotionally. Uh, as well, Kane is a, is a very funny movie. It's very, it's a very funny movie. I mean, mm -hmm. people don't, it's so playful for a, a movie that's where he had so much stakes. Yeah. Uh, and it was so controversial and everything, but when you see it, you just get the the, the exhilaration of him playing with this new toy uh, is palpable in that movie. And even though it's tragic and sad and you know dramatic and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's that's what's most exciting, I think, about it to return to over, over the years. I feel like he never seems so. Long. I mean, I get that from Touch of Evil too, where it's just he's having such a blast. With yeah. You know, he always had a blast. Well, he was, he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until they yeah. the the kicked studio. him out of the yeah. editing room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Orson was, uh, yeah. You know, I remember um, he was big in my family growing up because, you know, my mother and my uncles used to listen to his radio shows, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, and, you know, just even growing up when I was a kid before I knew <clears throat> him as a filmmaker, you know, this mysterious guy named Orson Welles, you know was always being and then when I was in elementary school and I at, at the library I found out they had a copy of the uh the War of the Worlds Orson's uh, War of the Worlds Oh like an audio tape yeah. yeah yeah so that was uh that was a record that I kept for a little bit longer than I should have you know but it was it was just fascinating you know just uh you know what he did and then um and then you know just to, you know to his work as a filmmaker you know um but, you know, so many stories, you know. I remember hearing the story about um, uh, his uh, all-black version of Macbeth that he did. And, um, Which there's a little bit of on YouTube. Oh, is there? Yeah. Oh, they got uh, you got, there's a little uh, section of... Uh, really? Yeah. So I remember John Houseman telling the story about it one night because John Houseman was his, was his producer. Right. <clears throat> and I think it was on uh, something like Dick Cavett or something, one of those late-night shows. And he was talking about how... Um, none of the critics wanted to like really weigh in on what they thought about this all black version of Macbeth. They were waiting for like this one critic to come in and finally say something. And then he finally said, you know, something like, you know, how dare Orson waste the, the government money on this darky version of a Shakespearean Ooh. classic, you know? And, you know, after that, 
all the other reviewers started weighing in and talking talking bad about it. And Houseman said he was sitting in his hotel room. They were all staying in the same hotel in New York. And he was uh, he was really bummed out. And he actually had three voodoo witches that that played the witches in in the play. And they came by his room and I saw he was like really so despondent. And I said, Wow, this this is not good for us, huh? He said, No, it's not good. He said, This is this is you know, we probably won't last too long. And I said, This man who writes these things about us, he's is he a bad man? <laughs> and he said I like where this is going. <laughs> and he said and he said, Yeah, yeah, he's 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 not a nice man at all. And he said he didn't think any more about it, but he said later on that night. He thought he heard drumming and chanting coming from someplace in the hotel. Please tell me the critic died the next day. He got sick, went into the hospital, and died a week later. <laughs> now, House, now John Houseman told this story on television. So Houseman's going to tell you this story, you know. Oh, that's marvelous. We will sell no God, wine I hope that's before true. time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Some people know how. Changes the whole nature of the artist-critic relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's... The only other time I heard about that was uh, Emilio Fernandez, you know, the filmmaker, shooting critics for giving them bad reviews. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> how many times we wanted to do that, you know? Well, we did. We had, believe it or not, we... <laughs> I think we, the movie, the movie uh, the, in question is Theater of Blood, where Vincent right. Price just kills all the people who gave him bad right. reviews okay. of Shakespeare. And that's like every... Well, there is, you know, you know, we had we had Uwe Boll on a, a couple months ago, and you know, he challenged critics to box him, and and actually a few showed up, and and uh, Uwe is a former former actual professional boxer, I believe. So he he laid a few of them out. He's currently challenging Alex Jones to come box him. And oh wow! We're hoping that will happen. Well, that would be nice. I'd like to see that. You yeah, know, I would I would pay. <coughs> need we offered to sponsor it. We did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. The, the official trailers from Hell Movies that maybe boxing match. <laughs> Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Was, or call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she... She knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. So, so who else? <laughs> oh man, who else do I got? I got um anything more. So Wells <clears throat> The Quater Mass series and anything written by Nigel Neal. Ah. See, I knew you'd sneak yeah. him in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I became a big Nigel Neal fan. Um actually, you know, I grew up I grew up with the Quatermass films. 
But I think I, I really started taking them seriously. In the 80s, I, f I got copies of the scripts to the Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2, and Quatermass in the Pit, because Penguin had published those scripts. And it was reading those that really kind of boosted my appreciation of the films. Mm. Um, you know, and and this is even before I even saw the uh, the 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 TV versions of them, you know, and um, just the writing in them was just, you know, the characters, you know, it was just, especially Quatermass in the Pit was so great. And then um, when I finally went to London for the premiere of my first film, Juice, and uh, I was determined to track down a copy of Quatermass in the Pit on tape. But then, of course, I had to buy a, uh, a, a a European a PAL version, a PAL VHS player. So that was my acquisition when I went to London. You know, Quatermass in the Pit on VHS and a uh, and a PAL uh, player to play it on. And that was the only thing I had that I could play on it. But I finally got to see it. It's fine. I, I literally just watched it a month and a half ago on a PAL Blu-ray. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> Really? Yeah. There's a there's a hammer box set. Um, you talking about the movie? The movie. Okay. Yeah. No, he's talking about the TV series. I'm talking about the oh the TV series. The, the, the oh, series. oh, oh, oh. Yeah. You know, those, those episodes are longer and much more detailed. Ah. Uh, all okay. three of the movies are compressed versions. My, my ignorance has been exposed. <laughs> videos, uh, most of which don't survive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just two all episodes. Of, all of Quatermass in the Pit is still available. All of Quatermass 2. And all of Quatermass 2, but the first one, I think there's only two episodes. Two episodes, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Now, when, when was this? The 80s? The 50s. 50, oh, sorry, 50s. Okay, I got you. But yeah, you got the, it in the, the series came out. I'm up to speed. Uh, well, I mean, I didn't know the historical <laughs> significance of Quatermass to British television because... I, I don't. So. Well, it was, <laughs> it was interesting because it was the first uh, dramatic series for, for television. You know, television, because I think it came out in 53. Mm. Around that time, television was just used for like big news events, you know, the Queen's right. wedding and stuff like that. But, but Quatermass in the Pit was the f oh, no Quatermass Experiment, the first Quatermass television serial, the Quatermass Experiment was the first dramatic presentation in England, um, and apparently it they said uh, the pubs were empty every night that Quatermass showed. The pubs were totally empty because everybody was home watching it. And I said it just terrified the nation. Mm. And uh, then Quatermass Two came out, and and I did like that script because I remember the movie version, which was released in America as Enemy from Space, Quatermass Two. And uh, I was surprised to find out in the TV version he actually gets in his rocket and goes up, mm. which was pretty pretty cool. And then Quatermass in the Pit. The movie is actually a really good uh, uh, distillation of of the the, the series because mm -hmm. Neil wrote the the screenplay for the movie, right. and uh, and it's you know it's just shorter and everything. Um, but it was you know you know just reading Nigel Neal was really 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 interesting, and it had me searching out for more of his stuff. And so you know I was able to uh, find uh, I remember I showed you a copy of. Uh, I gave you a copy of that of that show, Beasts. Yes. Yeah, which was a TV series. He did, he did. A lot of his best writing was for television. Yeah. yeah. Stone Tape and the Year of the Second. Oh, yeah, Stone, yes. I yeah. see the Stone Tape. Stone Tape yeah. was good. Yeah. 
And uh, and he wrote um, the Harryhausen film, um, First Men in the Moon. Mm. You know, he was a screenplay writer on that, which is uh, which has probably one of the better scripts, next to uh, uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. So yeah, so Neil, and you know, still finding stuff by him. Um, um, you know, just because the whole idea that what I love in his writing is that it challenges all of our notions that we, that we know how the world works. We know everything, mm. you know, which, you know, he did this, uh, this once, uh, this one half hour episode of a show and it was called Moraine. Maybe it was an hour, but it was uh, about this guy that goes to like this, this little village and, and these people in the village outside of London, you know, they're terrorizing and harassing this woman, you know, who, you know, looks like she's like just keeping to herself, but they're blaming her for, they're saying that she caused this plague that's been, that's been, you know, killing their sheep and, you know, making their animals sick. And, and they're, they're basically saying she's a witch. And, uh, and, you know, this guy is from the city, the, the hero's from the city and he's trying to, he's trying to save her, you know, he's trying to save her from these backward people. But then it ends with, she possibly did do something to somebody, you know, like give uh, Bernard Lee is in it playing uh, this guy who, who like runs everybody in town and, you know, he suffers this heart attack and was it because he's been drinking too much or was it because she actually did something to him, you know? And, um, and, you know, Neil always, you know, has this questioning, you know, um, you know, our rituals, you know, our civilization where, Everything comes from, and I love that. And even our beliefs. I mean, you know, in uh, in Quite a Mass in the Pit, the, he well, yeah, uh, explains yeah. the, the origin of the devil, uh, which yeah. I, I guess probably ruffled a few feathers uh, in in the day. Had to have, sure. Uh, yeah. But um, it, it's it, he he had such an interesting way of looking at particularly um, you know Celtic kind of beliefs and Stonehengey things and like that, and and, and trying to connect them with you know modern day. Uh, and, and in person, he was, he was a very nice guy. He's very irascible. Uh, mm -hmm. and he wasn't very happy with a lot of the, uh, filmed versions of the things that he'd no, he done. hated, he hated Brian Donlevy. He hated Brian Donlevy. I mean, I, we all tried to explain to him that, that it was, it was okay in America for us to have this guy be brusque and commanding and stuff. Right. But, but of course, Nigel had written him a different way. He, he'd written him to be, you know, courtly and, and, and nice and, and prof professorial, and mm -hmm. that's the way that it was played on television. But when they hired Brian Donlevy, he became like a, sort of a, a gangster, uh, you know. Um, but he was really good at it. I yeah, mean, it was, well, it was a very forceful. Um, it, was, it was get it done, Quatermass. Yeah, it was, very, it, was, it, was, it was very forceful, and they were and they were compressed versions of the right. of the, the TV show, so there wasn't a lot of room for that kind of subtlety. But uh, and 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 he in the end he sort of agreed that he was glad that that those movies had made so many of us Americans happy mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, generated more interest in his work and stuff. But he just, um, he just couldn't get over the fact that, they, and it wasn't just that it was Brian Donnelly, it was that it was an American uh. who was playing this quintessentially British, British character, yeah. and that's and, and you know how the Brits are oh, about their yeah. character. <laughs> yeah. You worked with him a little bit, did you? Weren't I you, worked with him on, a, on uh, Halloween 3 for uh -huh. a while. Right. I actually got him the job, but because uh, I, I suggested to John Carpenter that he would be good to do, because Carpenter wanted to get away from the the, the formula that mm -hmm. they had been doing for mm -hmm. the first two pictures, and so um, he went to 
I had to drop out and do the Twilight Zone movie because that was a go movie, and this was a maybe movie. Mm. Uh, and uh, and afterward, um, uh, Nigel or Tom, as he liked to be called, uh, was um, I had a lot of disagreements about the the way that uh, his work was being treated, and so he uh, eventually, I think, took his name off the picture. Yeah, that's what yeah. I heard. Yeah. I, yeah, no, they don't like that. It's crazy because they just—they're happy to come over here and take parts from Americans. You know, <laughs> it's uh, what a nativist. I mean, my guy. Yeah, the, the, but the, the, the moment when you realize that every single human being, with the possible exception of uh, of um, I can't remember, you know, the captain uh, on the wire is British. That was that was you know everyone. Everyone on that show was British. Uh, don't don't, don't not, argue with me. Not everybody, but there were quite a <laughs> too few. Many, too many. Too <laughs> many. Yeah, no. Didn't realize you were an anglophobe. It's, it's well, no, you know, those are American actors who didn't get work. It's, uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> although there is a there's a wonderful one where McNulty has to um, pretend to be British, and you know he's a British actor doing playing an American character doing a bad British accent. And I was impressed. It didn't seem like he was doing his own accent. He was actually doing a bad American British accent. I thought that's, that's uh, acting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. It, and that, folks, is called a digression. <laughs> it is. It is. Yes. There had, there had been a few. There had been a few. I mean, Andy Lincoln on, on Walking Dead. That's right. Yeah. He's British. Yeah. So who's next? Oh, gosh. The guy keeps us going. He's... Uh, <laughs> Places to be. Bogged down into an anti-British <laughs> sentiment. <here. laughs> okay, let's go to Italy. Mario Bava. Ah, another DP turned director. Yep. Yep. Beautiful always. stuff. Always, always good to look at, even if. Yeah. Well, Not, we, well we were always when we we kept. I was a huge Bava fan from the very beginning, but I I do remember around the era of Kill Baby Kill in 1966 that. You know, thinking it was a wonderful movie, but when is he going to get a good script? <laughs> right. And he eventually sort of got good scripts, but it, that was never really the appeal of his movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's. I mean, I was. I mean, to me, that's the appeal of a lot of Italian horror films. And that, you know, no, they're not heavy on conscious logic, but they're really good on dream logic. Yeah. Really good on dream logic. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I you don't look at an Italian horror film for not too many of them for you know, for the plot. Damn these plot the holes. Story, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. look at them for a whole bunch of other things, you know. And, you know, I mean, I think, I, I guess, I guess the, the whole um, concentrating on plot and story, uh, is that an American thing that comes from England? Because it's not like a heavy thing in, let's say, Chinese cinema, like the right. films of Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. You yeah. know, or Italian films, you know, some of the best Italian films aren't, Heavy on plot, but really, you know, heavy on images, mood, and atmosphere. Where yeah. that becomes it. It's funny though when you say that, I realize I, I don't have any aversion to foreign films that are, you know, plotless or less less than narratively, you know, rigid. It's just somehow when I'm watching an American or British film and and it doesn't, it it somehow I, it's very weird. I'd never thought about that before. Because um, I'm, I'm more than happy to watch a great Italian film that makes no logical sense as mm -hmm. long as it looks and feels right. But like I said, I'm still I'm still struggling with 2001. <laughs> I don't know. That's really weird. Uh, Go see an analyst. So, what's your favorite Bob? Yeah. 
My favorite Baba picture, okay. It's, uh, it could be uh, uh, six, six Ladies for the Murderer. It could be, you know, Blood and Black Lace. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, I've, I've looked at that like three or four times the past week. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, it's just, it's just such a funky, cool little movie. I also really like uh, The Whip and the Body. I think the whip in the body is probably not seen that one. his most beautiful, his most beautiful film. Uh, visually, it's it's pretty awesome. Although I'm a little bit disappointed with the Blu-rays that have come out in the past couple of years, because I don't think they've gotten the color balance right. It it seems like they cooled the colors off and it took away a lot of the saturation. Mm, right. You know, I could never sure. figure out how he managed to to get those sunsets to last long enough for him to shoot those scenes. I mean, he, he, there's so many scenes in his pictures where the sun is it's in that beautiful magic hour moment, right? You know, where it's got the sky is sort of blue, but the light is sort of red, and it's just gorgeous. And the scenes just go on and on, and you think that they have to come back like three times that week to, to that particular spot to just get the rest of the scene. Well, that same that same stretch of beach that yeah. he always shoots on. When uh, Dali Lavi and Christopher Lee first get first get together, you know that's. I think he grew up in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was that mm-hmm. beach meant something to him. And he always resisted uh, entreaties to come to America and work because he didn't. For one thing, he didn't feel his English was good enough. Yeah. Uh, but he was very modest. I mean, Tim Lucas's book, which is you know weighs about as much as a filing cabinet, mm. uh, it tells you just about everything you could want to know about Mario Bava, including movies that he worked on and didn't get any credit for, and movies that he did special effects on that nobody knows about, and movies that he shot stuff for. And, and, and he, was, he was a very, very busy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, his movies in America were relegated to double bills and drive-ins and right. were never really taken most very seriously. American International, at least. Yeah, if he hadn't those. hooked up with American International, I think a lot of the movies never would have gotten seen. Yeah. Now, fascinating, fascinating filmmaker. Um, and um, you he got his last movie, uh, Rabid Dogs, which was released after his death because it was a, a tied up in the lab or something, uh, is a complete departure. Have you seen it? Movies. I have not, no. Oh, it's, man, it's, you got to check a, it out. It's a, it's a kidnapping movie. Okay. It's got, oh, it's all set in a car. It's all yes. takes place in a car. Yes, yeah. I have. I don't think I've registered that it was him. It's all takes place in a car, and it's it's a little maddening in that everyone is speaking English, but they're you, they've obviously all been dubbed in Italian, and right. there's no English track. So you you it's it's a little disconcerting when you watch it because you can tell what they're saying, and then the subtitles sometimes aren't translated <laughs> correctly. Uh, but it's a it's a remarkable. It's a it's a it's got a sort of Last House on the Left vibe to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's really a, a remarkable movie, and it's completely different. It's like he just decided I'm going to do a picture where nobody knows that it's me doing the movie because it's so in, none of his usual tropes are in evidence at all. Uh, but it's a really good movie. And he could have. I mean, if what ultimately happened to it hadn't happened it could have given him a whole new direction yes because it could have been very commercial yeah mm-hmm. but what happened the producer died not long after they shot it and i think uh some bills weren't paid and they impounded the negative until uh years later the the lady who played the first kidnapping leah i think mm-hmm. uh, i forget her last name but leah is the actress's name she uh, apparently she married a guy that had money, you know, rich guy, and she decided to finance, you know, putting the film back together again. Mm. And 
and it's it's <laughs> it's the movie that made me want to made me make the transition from laserdisc to DVD <laughs> because <laughs> because the, the only way I could see it was on DVD, you know. And I said, okay, I, I oh guess my I, god, I have to upgrade. I guess I better get a DVD <laughs> again. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what did it. So put your laser player in the closet with your VHS from PAL. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still have one in the box. What? As as they were vanishing, as, a laser it, was, as it was starting to end, I found on some website they were selling, uh, they were selling them, and you know it's like a hundred dollars for a, you know like everything must go. And I thought, you know, I still have this collection. I my laser displayer may yeah, die. You haven't, you haven't seen it recently, have you? Uh, no, it's been sitting in my garage for ten well, years. No, I mean the collection. Because the collection? Oh, no, I, I sold a, it. There's a thing called laser rot. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, I kept two. I have I have an autographed um, Breaker Morant and an autographed Reservoir Dogs. This is my well, only two well, laser you, discs you, you that got, I hung on to. You've got the covers. I got the, got yeah, the sleeves. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure the, there's sparkling the dust probably inside. probably don't work anymore. And, you know, I, I wonder about that because, you know, that laser disc of Danger Diabolic has been sitting in the back of my, <laughs> the back seat of my car. Oh, like it's past, gone. Like oh, the no, past three no, years, no, 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 still sitting in the still sitting in the envelope, it's right? It's a pizza there. tin now. Yeah, I'll talk about <laughs> it. There's supposedly um, a, a Brazilian or something Blu-ray of that that's supposed to look great. That that mm. uh, uh, that guy, oh my god, I was blank. The, the, you know that little shop in Culver City. Oh yes, I remember. Uh, oh yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, been yeah. trying to track down forever, and I keep hoping he'll he'll find it. I've never been able to find that place. Oh wow! It's uh yeah, it's, you gotta know where you gotta to know go. where it is, man. It's, it's, it's like I've dri <laughs> driven around and like I don't see it, you know. It's 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 behind a Brazilian, sort of I guess like a Brazilian mini mall. It's like a little mall that you know. Well, it's, it's, in, it's in that mini mall. It's, it's right, but it's behind. Yeah, there's like a Brazilian restaurant, and it's still there. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And last time I was there, last month, he said his business is good. Yeah, he's doing great. It's a great, great, great store. Foreign Exchange Blu-ray Imports. That is it's a catchy name. 10826 Venice Boulevard in Culver City. Oh, but it's on Venice Boulevard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just have, but you really do have to know. It's a tiny little mini mall, and you park, and you go inside, and it's not, it's like an enclosed mini mall. Yeah, yeah. Um, you walk yeah. inside, and even when you're inside, and it's like even when you know where it is, store, you have to squint to see it. And, okay. some, and, a, and a bar, <laughs> and then... Oh, well, well. And then the place, and then it's, the uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like it's it's sort of reminiscent of Doctor Who's telephone booth. It's, uh, <laughs> you walk inside; it's a little bit larger than. It appears. You mean like our studio here? Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, closed on Tuesdays. Yes. Oh, okay. Hey, I mean, I'm gonna go all the way out there. Don't go on a Tuesday. And he's yeah. great. And I, I was I, I took Larry I took Larry Karaszewski there once, and he wanted to buy an All Regions Blu-ray player and. And uh, the guy tried to talk him out of it. He was like, you know, you could get a better deal online. He was pointing <laughs> him to where. <laughs> I thought that's, it's not, I, yeah, well, you know. Um, hey, but you supposedly, know, yeah, about, there's, a, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah. there's a Diabolique uh, Blu-ray that I'm hoping. Well, I have Now a, I'm hoping that he'll find and give to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that was the movie that was supposed to get him, you know, back up in the Diabolique. Yeah, because yeah. it was Dino De Laurentiis, and oh, you know, it was, amazing. and it's uh, and it it just it didn't do anything. But it but it was and it was Paramount. It was a big company. Yeah. But um, it's an amazing movie. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
made it. I mean, I think he they made gave it him cheaper. $3 million. Yeah, and he, he made, made it cheaper. For... He gave money back to <laughs> yeah. them. And that, there was a, an aborted earlier version directed by Seth Holt that yeah. didn't get finished. And so Dina was already into it for money, you yeah. know. Uh, and, and then Mario came along and sort of saved it. Uh, and it was John Philip Law replaced some guy as Diabolic, but I can't yeah. remember who. Um, but anyway, it's um, it's a wonderful movie. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, it, it was. I'm surprised that it didn't do well. It didn't do well in Italy either, huh? Because uh, when we were in Italy doing A Miracle at Santa Ana, they had uh, the Comic-Con, the annual Comic-Con at, uh, in, in Luca, mm-hmm. And we went, and there was like diabolic paraphernalia all over the place. Diabolic throw rug. Diabolic <laughs> bed sheets. Diabolic pillowcases. Well, definitely I mean, got a life after. I mean, the Beastie Boys did a video that was Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah I made off on it. Yeah. Yeah. And wasn't it, what year was, was it? was a comic strip. 60, 60, yeah. 60, 60. So, I mean, it was still right, because it all seemed to me that right on the heels of the Batman show, that show. Well, yeah. And I think it came game. out in America around the time that there were a lot of imitation James Bond movies. Yeah. That's what everybody Operation thought it was. Kid Brother. You know, stuff yes. Like <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what Connery was that? Neil Connery. Bill. Neil Bill Connery. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Bobo Connery is. Uh, Neil Connery, gosh. But, um, yeah, but, you know, it's uh, the, the DVD of uh, Diabolic is pretty interesting because uh, they have, and the extras, they're talking about the differences in the storylines between the European comics and and the American comics, <clears throat> and how in a lot of European comics, the heroes were actually anti-establishment. They were really the villains, revolutionaries, because, well, well, because and, Italy yeah. lost the war. Yeah, but since America won the war, it was like you know truth, justice, and the American way, you know, and 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 all these bastions of 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 goodness, you know, became um, American heroes. But the European heroes were all anti-establishment because Diabolic was 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 a thief, yep. you know, and and he blew up the tax offices in the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. I'll, I'll play the bouncy music under this yeah. whole sequence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Morricone. Yeah. Yes. So, what next? Well, one film. My mother always used to tease me about it because. It showed on Million Dollar Movie. And she swore, and she's probably right, that I watched it every time it, it showed. That's 16 times. Yeah. In Million Dollar Movie, they used to run the movie 16 times during the week. And that was... Uh, I mean, I knew they ran it a lot. Of course, you're the person who knows exactly how many times. <laughs> well, well weren't good. they... But they were different everywhere, weren't they? Or was it... Was it a, uh, this is a New York thing. Yeah. No, we had it in Philadelphia. We had the Million Dollar Movie in Philly. We had it for a week. And it show for a week. I think we had it like the weekend, and it was like, because it was always... And I, I feel like it was always a movie I didn't want to see that they would watch. Well, this, this, this was all RKO movies, and it was all okay. RKO General in New York and Channel 9. Yeah. But this, oh, okay. Yeah, this, this movie was a Warner Brothers film. It was Moby Dick. John Houston's oh, Moby Dick. John Houston, yeah. Yeah. Which uh, you saw in black and white? Yeah. So, I you saw saw half the, so you saw half the color palette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw it for years in black and white, and I finally saw it in color when I was in college. Uh, they had a screening of it, and I don't even think it was the 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 color process that he did, that Houston and uh, Oswald Morris did. It was 
more saturated than it was supposed to be because I know they had some prints that were really saturated. So um, it was much later that I was finally able to see the, the way it's supposed to really look. But um, but I think one of the things that really, really, really gets me about that film is is uh, is uh, Ray Bradbury's writing. Ray Bradbury's script. You know, yeah. that screenplay, you know. Uh, some of the language in it is just is just so amazing. I just love that film, hmm. and it's and it's it, you know. When I say these are movies that are inspirational, a lot of times when I'm prepping a film, I'll just put something on, right? You know, just make to sure play in the background. Yeah, and Moby Dick is one of them because I can listen to it, mm -hmm. I can look up, you know, know exactly where I am in it, you know, and and um, and you know, just that that whole approach to color, because Houston had started painting. And I think once oh, he started okay. painting, he he started really getting more interested in the looks of his films, and the whole I, the whole um, color palette idea. Um, I remember reading the interview that he did in Playboy magazine, where he, where he said every film should have its own color style, should have its own color palette, which should you know contribute to the the, the personality, the individual personality of that film, and you know, Moulin Rouge uh, was the first time he did that. Uh, with Ozzy Morris and and their experiments with color, you know, went into Moby Dick, Reflections on the Golden Eye, you know, and uh, they had a a fruitful collaboration up until uh, the man who would be king, you know, uh, him and Ozzy Morris, and uh, uh, it's just one of those films that that I just never tire of looking at or listening to. Not not well received, was it? I mean, come on, I feel like it's not uh, particularly. It was because of uh, Gregory, Gregory Peck, Peck was yeah. considered uh, wildly miscast, and everybody uh, said, "Why didn't Houston play it?" Because you know? I, I remember knowing of it for years as you know, oh, just you don't want to see this. Movie. Well, I saw I'm finally seeing it. Great way to see a movie. Everyone tells you it's terrible, and then you know, it's like hey, Gregory it's Peck better than that. Gregory Peck doesn't bother me. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 saw, it, I saw it. I saw it. I enjoy that film. Uh, as a birthday party present that, that the, my friend Randy Crawford, his 10th birthday, his mother took all of his oh. birthday guests to the movies, uh. and we all saw Moby Dick. And um, it was, it was a, you know, it was a, to us it was a monster movie. Sure, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was like, oh, cool, you know, yeah, it's a monster movie. Um, and, but, but the scene that, even when I was a kid, the scene that really creeped me out was the scene with the Royal Dano as Elijah. Oh, yeah. When he... Does his prognostication? And see one day you'll smell land where there be no land, and on that and day, he is, and, yeah. Ahab will go to his grave. It will rise again within the hour. He'll rise and beckon, so that all, all save one shall follow. See, he has seen it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Great scene. Yeah. And it takes you full circle because Orson Welles is in it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People were saying, "Why didn't Why didn't Orson play?" But I, but I thought, I thought, I mean, a lot of people said Gregory Peck was too young for that role. He was, I yeah, but I thought he was good. He was fine in it, but he yeah. he didn't seem very craggy. Yeah. Mm. Robert Newton, now on the other hand, <laughs> did you? Were you? Uh, I'm interested too, because so the movie that imprinted itself on you was Black and White, and it was was when you saw it in color finally. Did you prefer it? Was there something, you know, it was. Well, it's, that, it's, it's, it's interesting you should say that because when you see the color style, the color style is a desaturated color. Mm -hmm. You know, they were trying to uh, emulate the, the, the looks of the old sea paintings, <clears throat> which were, you know, kind of like a desaturated palette. Um, 
so I think it, I think it, I think it stuck with me. Um, it stayed with me, you know, I, uh, I, cause I had been reading Bradbury. It took me years. The one thing that used to piss me off about million dollar movie, they'd show you the movie, but they wouldn't show you the credits. So, you know, really? you never saw a credit. Yeah, it was very common in New York. Yeah. Just cut the credits off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they know the title. What's the difference? Yeah, uh, and they might cut into it. Netflix you know. does the same thing now. Well, the end. At the end. You can't see. There's no, and all the credits are at the end now. Oh, well, I think people. So any show you watch on Netflix, you can get to see the first two cards, and then it goes into a little tiny box up in the corner. Oh, and, oh I, I heard. Didn't they, that just change though? Didn't they get a lot of? Or am I, well, they. I hope they got a lot of blowback, yeah. but I just watched uh, Maniac, and it's uh, a, that's a brand new show, and you can see the first two cards, and the rest of them are unreadable in the corner, and uh, yeah, they keep them up because they're legally required right to run them but they're not legally required to run them in a way that you can read them which i find yeah. maddening isn't that a drag well, who it's netflix if you don't want to watch them you just start watching i mean it's in, uh. i mean because i didn't i didn't associate <laughs> ray bradbury with um sure moby yeah. dick yeah. for years yeah you know because i could never see it with the credits and um and i had started reading bradbury in Ah, yeah, I think elementary school. I think I read the Martian Chronicles. I think in like seventh, seventh or the eighth grade. That's when we all did. Yeah, it's like the gateway drug to Bradbury. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it's 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 all, it's been my go to, my my favorite Bradbury book. But you know from there and and you know something wicked this way comes and the Illustrated Man and stuff like that. Um, so I was you know I was a big fan of Bradbury. So it really boosted my whole appreciation of Moby Dick later on to find out that. That yeah. you know, he he wrote the screenplay with Houston. Yeah, apparently they didn't have too happy a time. No, I still want to find out more about that because I heard that you know it's a book about it. Houston, Houston would terrorize him. Didn't they do a movie? Wasn't there a oh, movie or something that was? Is it White Hunter, Black Heart? No, yeah. that's that's about African Queen. Oh right. So which is, is there one about? I don't think there's one about making Moby Dick. I don't think so. Or writing it at at Houston's place in Ireland or something. Uh, but White White Hunter is amazing. That's that is a very underrated film. If only Gregory Peck had played the lead. <laughs> <laughs> I I like Clint Eastwood. Instead of Clint Eastwood, I, oh, well. it's uh, a sin to kill an elephant. That's funny. You, madam, are the ugliest bitch I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I think I think uh, you know. That, uh, that approach that Houston took towards, uh, <clears throat> you know, having each film having its own color palette yeah. is something that, you know, um, I started. In it my didn't work too good in right Reflections of Golden Eye. Well, the studio, I think, kept well, wanting to you, take it. Have you seen it? Uh, in, the, in the golden, in the golden version? version? Yeah, it's all golden. It's all one color. What? The whole, the whole movie is it's golden. color. Yeah. It's like they might have shot it, might as well have shot it in black and white and just tinted. I, I just don't understand. I mean, it's his golden eye. I get it, you know, but right. I don't. I don't get it for two hours. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can hint at it. Yeah, you can sneak some other colors in there. But um, well, I mean, you know, but you know, just that that idea of 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 the color personality of a film. Yeah, is something that that I've always taken to heart in every film that I had ever. That's done. why you like Mario Bava so much. I think so. I think so. You know, he was he was pretty <laughs> he was pretty blatant in his in his color use though. You know, I love Baba. 
What else you got? What else do I have? European genre cinema. We kind of like went over that. Uh, you know, especially Italian Gothic horror and westerns. Mm. Oh yeah, you you like them spaghetti westerns? I, I love Italian westerns because you know, I I I was ne you know, I guess I was never a big big fan of westerns. I used to look at it on TV. I used to look at the Rifleman, the Rifleman, and Wanted Dead or Alive. You know, uh, my favorite TV shows growing up. Then I got away from westerns because I just felt the streets looked too clean. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw my first Italian western, which was uh, for a few dollars more, and it was horse shit in the streets, yeah. I said, "Now nah, that's a western. <laughs> that's real." You know <laughs> that. You know that, and <clears throat> you know the guys having scars looked like they had never, never really healed. <laughs> You know, and flies flying around them and everything yeah. else. I um, what's what's your favorite? By the way, I have to say because we've one of the fun things about doing trailers from hell is every now and then, uh, you know, Joe's just pocketing this money right and left. And never, <laughs> but you know, every now and then you find out one of your commentaries is on some movie you like, and there's a few of them where I'm just I'm so happy. But I I will say to you now on the record, I've never been more seethingly jealous than when they announced the. Uh, you know, the 4K Blu-ray of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly with the Trailers from Hell commentary from Ernest Dickerson. I'm like, God damn it. Do you, oh, do that? you not even know this? <laughs> he doesn't even know it. God did I do the Trailers it. from Hell commentary? Yes, you yeah, did. You did. You did also a couple of other uh, Leonis. You did, Oh, yeah. like uh, for a few dollars more? Yeah. Oh, wow. But it's on there. There's a beautiful Blu-ray of, uh, it's got both versions, you know, the long new cut and everything. Oh, hey, there I it is it. amongst all the supplements. They, is, don't, uh, we, they, they don't send what? us the... Is it Kino? I think it's I think Kino. It's Kino is it out? Oh, it's been out for a year. They don't send us copies. They we make the deals, and if they give us money, we send you some money. But they never send us any deals. Oh yeah, I, yeah. Nobody ever sends me discs. Yeah, we <laughs> shows that I do. They don't send me discs. No, I had to check that out because uh, no, I think I think probably my favorite my favorite Italian western is probably for a few dollars more. Really, it was okay. the first one I saw. Ah, well, that yeah. It was the first one I saw. I remember the summer that I saw it. Uh, it was the summer of the rebellion in Newark, mm -hmm. the Newark rebellion. I was uh, I was working right in the middle of it. I had a summer job. Uh, you know, the best jobs for the summer were like neighborhood youth corps, and they paid pretty well. Uh, I think a dollar seventy five an hour in the sixties for you know. Or summer gig wasn't too bad, and you know I was working as a janitor. But I remember the movies from that summer were for a few dollars more, and you only live twice. Mm -hmm. That was 67. yeah. And um, and uh, I went and saw it for a few dollars more. And I liked it so much, I went back and saw it again a couple of days later. Yeah, so it was you know. It really, really hit me. So then, when when I saw the good, bad, and the ugly was was going to come out, yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. Do you, do you like the whole genre? Do you find or is it mostly kind of the those? I mean, I've just found I've tried for years, like a long time, where I would just see any spaghetti western that would come out in whatever format, and and uh, uh, I, I don't have Alex Cox's appreciation for the genre i find it's like i love the leone ones and uh -huh. there's a few others like company well if you get but... into them there there's a lot there's a lot of areas to mine yeah. yeah because they're they're almost all political yeah but, a lot of them yeah. are about italian politics 
Um, but also there were, the, the term horse opera never was more accurate. Right. Uh, Very operatic. To these because they're, they're, the, the music is like half yeah. the movie. Oh, no, it's uh, wonderful. And the way that the way the music is used, uh, um, and over the very very over the top. Yeah, Morricone did a lot of yeah. a lot of scores, hundreds. <coughs> but, well, some um, of them were rejected by Leone. <laughs> but, well, that's okay. I use it here. Yeah, put it somewhere else. But um, yeah, I mean, there's there's one. You know, some of it has some pretty interesting stories. There's one called uh, uh, Face to Face, Faccia e Faccia, with Tomas Milian, and. Um, Avante, uh, yeah, which is a really interesting story uh, about a, an exchange of personality. How this professor is diagnosed—he's he's back east, you know—and he's diagnosed with tuberculosis, and so he's got to travel out west to try and save himself. And he winds up getting hooked up with this with this really brutal bandit played by Tomas Millian. And it's interesting because they wind up exchanging places. The the meek, mild professor winds up becoming a brutal bandit. And the brutal bandit winds up becoming a pretty nice guy, you know. And it's an interesting story, you know. Uh, one of the Corbucci did it, yeah. 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 And so you got those. Uh, the Great Silence. Mm-hmm. Oh, which is a downer. Yeah, that's a real bummer. Well, there's a couple of different endings, though, so you can pick the one you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, in Django, I, I, mm. just, I just love the moment in Django where you know, he's dragging the coffin. What do you have in that coffin? Django's in that coffin. And then he pulls it open one time and pulls out a, a Gatling gun <laughs> and starts blowing people away. That was so outrageous. I just loved it. But, you know, I love um, I love the operaticness of mm-hmm. those films. I love a lot of the production design. Um, I think Carlos Simi did the production design on Django and just the way that town... That town is just built on mud, you know, and it's just like this muddy, this muddy uh, landscape, you know, and it's just so surreal, you know. There's a there's a really interesting surreality about so many of those films that I love so much, and um, I recently was doing some reading last week on technoscope, you know, got me. I'd love to shoot some technoscope because how do you get an anamorphic look without using anamorphics and still being able to use spherical lenses. You know, well, all those films were shot in technoscope, which is instead of four perf, it's two perf. So you wind up using hmm. half the amount of film. You know, you can you extend your film budget. Yeah, I mean, you know, and um, I think there was an effort to bring it back uh, fairly. Be- in fact, on Burying the X, we flirted with the idea of doing it in technoscope because the stock is so much better now. Uh-huh. You know the grain is much less, and then um, and then. But then, but it, then it really it just becomes a matter of film. Do people want to pay for the lab costs and all that stuff? And it always ends up being a little cheaper to not do that because you're going to end up on on digital anyway. Yeah. And so you know we went digital, but uh, but but I, you I, know I scanning it, but you know scanning it now is much much easier. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. a lot of my favorite movies are in technoscope. Yeah, I found yeah uh, Ed Chris file, mm-hmm. technoscope. Mm. Yeah, beautifully shot film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, talk about compositions. Oof. <laughs> yeah, I got those compositions in my phone too. <laughs> yeah, really, really interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, just how they were able to achieve such deep depth of field, you know, 
with support with looks like an anamorphic lens because mm -hmm. anamorphic lenses do not have great depth of field. Mm. They're very shallow depth of field, but but there's a great shot in uh, for a few dollars more where they're staking out the bank and they're counting how long it takes the guys to go around the bank and there's this one shot of this guy in profile and his face is like here in profile and in the background, fairly sharp, you see the bank, which is about 30 feet away and you see the guards going away, but you know. Doing something like that, anamorphic, would have been really, really, really tough. Ah, okay. Yeah, because there's a lot of those shots, especially in Leone films. Mm -hmm. Giant face right up in front of the camera. and then Right in the landscape. Going a mile yeah, away. You got that landscape and yeah. you got somebody coming into a close-up. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that stuff is, you know, hard to achieve, but in technoscope, I kind of wish I was still shooting so I could try it out, try and talk to somebody in shooting a film in technoscope. I'll try and push it as a director. Good luck. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. rooting for you. Yeah. I do miss film. I do miss film. That's one of that's one of the things that I'm not sorry that I got out of cinematography for because you know I you know I would have had to learn a whole other technology. Uh. Yeah. And I still, I'm still basically an analog kind of a guy. You know, I still write stuff out on legal pads and stuff. So. Yeah, we should mention this is his list is on a legal pad, not yeah. an iPad. Or a, yeah, that's how I write. Even 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 script writing, I write really? on yellow, yellow legal pad. Yeah, wow, it's the child of his century. Yeah, yeah. I f I find it hard. I can't think and type at the same time. Yeah, typing is a very mechanical thing. That's why I can't write one-tenth as fast as I can type or think. So I just, I can't remember the last time I wrote something by hand. It yeah. just seems like a lost. I write by hand all the time. Yep. <laughs> I still add, you know, just, I still add, you know, like with the, I jot down the numbers and I carry the one. Carry the one and. Uh... <laughs> I still do that stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can add it up by the time it takes me time to pull out a, pull out a, a computer. Just skills I don't even have anymore. I guess other big things that inspire me, big widescreen action films from the 60s. Ah. Movies like The Train, mm -hmm. The Guns of Navarone, The Great Escape. You know, um, even, you know, movies like El Cid. You know, big big movies you know lawrence of arabia you know i've still <clears throat> i still got to take my sons to see lawrence in the theater you know have they ever seen it at all or not no okay. yeah they've seen it oh, yeah uh, but you know my son thinks you know well can you can you watch lawrence on your cell phone yeah no, no problem no you cannot yeah that's what he says no problem <laughs> That's one movie I've never seen that. I think I've probably bought every version of it since VHS and I've never watched any of them because I will only go see that when it's in the theater. I have this giant, there's a beautiful Blu-ray box set that came out about two years ago. I haven't, I've looked at all the supplements. I've never watched the movie on, on. Now some movies like 2001 just need to be seen yeah. on a big screen. On a big screen. Yeah. yeah. And Lawrence. Lawrence is one of them too. And Dr. Sure. Javago looked really good too when I saw it. It looked great. 
But how uh, far do you go? I mean, do you like where Eagles Dare, or is that too? Uh, no, I love where Eagles Dare. <laughs> Operation <Okay>. Crossbow. <laughs> I like, uh, you know, even though the rockets, the the flame coming out of the rockets was a little iffy, <laughs> you know. Uh, actually, I saw it in the theater, and I was so everybody dies at the end of it. That's the thing. That, what everybody dies, even Sophia Loren dies. Yeah, so war. Hmm? Yeah, but you know, you were hoping somebody was going to be a hero, you know. But yeah, Eagles Dare. I was into a whole thing of uh, uh, Alistair McLean. McLean. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah, I read The Guns of Navarone. I read Where Eagles Dare. Um, I read several of his books, Ice Station Zebra. Yeah. You know, no one's ever done Circus, have they? I don't see. Remember, it's a, it's a, it's later in his. I think he wrote it in the seventies, and it's a. Um, it's it's one of those great, you know, the the spy gets together a special team of experts who are all circus performers and they use their circus skills to pull off the mission. It's great okay. stuff. It, uh, <laughs> it's like a great oh, movie. Not familiar with that one. No one's no one's done it. I just remember hearing Clint Eastwood talk once, and he he did not name the film, and he wasn't specifically bad mouthing anything, but he's he's like you know, uh, you know, and sometimes you do you do some terrible ones. They, they tell Richard Burton you want to be in a movie with him. They tell you, you know, Richard Burton wants to be in a movie with you, and then you get together and you've never even heard of each other. And <laughs> wow. but uh, I, I enjoy that one. It's goofy it's fun. It's goofy movie. fun. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But um, uh, a movie that that I, you know, has been a big favorite for the past couple of years because I rediscovered it. This movie I always like to watch, but you know, it's you know how you look at films differently being a filmmaker. You know, now that you make movies and you're looking at other movies that you grew up with differently, The Train, Frankenheimer's mm. The Train, yeah. is, I think, whew, So good. Oh, one of the best action films ever made. And just the idea, just the fact they did all that stuff for real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They wrecked real trains. <laughs> they, they and he used, almost wrecked himself. That's why he's limping for the second half of the movie. Oh, uh, Lancaster! Yeah, yeah. yeah he he, did all his own he twisted his, he twisted his leg golfing, so they made it look like he got shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the audio commentary on the Blu-ray is, is pretty funny because, you know, he's, you know, Frankenheimer's talking about how they're they're working with this one French actor, and you know they're working and working and working, and one day he gets told by the AD, uh, you know, we're going to lose him tomorrow. What do you mean we're going to lose him tomorrow? He's committed to another film, but I need him for other stuff. He's committed to another film. We're going to lose him. What am I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Fuck it. I'll execute him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they have this quick shot outside where these guys are machine gunned down. And one of them is the, the station master. <laughs> you know? That stuff is funny. You have to shoot in sequence to be able to get away with that, though. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you know, I guess the guy was going to be another stuff. But... Um, but you know the whole story about the the train going out of control and taking out the nine cameras lined up and it took out eight of them. But the one that's left wow. is a great shot. Oh yeah, because the wheel comes right up <laughs> yeah, to yeah. it and stops. Yeah, Arthur yeah. Penn was supposed to direct that picture. Oh really? And he got fired. It, it and, feels- and Frankenheimer came in, you know, as he, as he often did on movies, he came in like as a at the last minute to try to you know make something of it. And this was during his classical period where he made like nothing but good movies from like the mm. mid 60s to the yeah. late 60s i mean it was like every single one of them was like brilliant mm-hmm. yeah. and 
And, you know, you look at it now and you just wonder, man, you know, the camera operators had their, they had their life. I mean, because he's shooting most of the film with wide angle lenses and the train is coming right up and you got the bumper of the train coming in. It's almost like right into the lens and the camera just like slides to the right, you know? I mean, you know, they were like in there on top of that stuff. Yeah. And Bert doing his own stunts, you know, had a great deal of respect. You know, Scott Wilson is, is a really good friend of ours. And, you know, he talks about working with Bert in movies like Castle Keep. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that picture. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Castle Keep and, and the Gypsy Moths and stuff. And, and he's, just, he's got some great stories about Bert. You know, he was, you know, one of those guys you really wanted to meet. Did you ever meet him? Never met him. There's a good there's a good book about a good biography about him. Mm. Yeah. Used to be an acrobat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> movies like that, movies like um The Blue Max, mm. which had such beautiful aerial photography. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um and, and I think, you know, that's the thing I miss. I'm I miss days when when guys would actually do real stuff like that, you know, real, you know, really choreographed air battles, you know, or, you know, <laughs> wrecking real trains, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think the, the closest thing I had to that was uh episode of the walking dead where the governor has a tank that, that just starts laying waste to the prison and it mows down the, the fence and everything. And we had a real tank, you know, mm. we had to be, you know, the guy driving the tank had to be real careful because he had a very limited field of view, but he had a tank and he had people walking around it. He had to make sure that nobody was in the wrong spot and got run over, you know, so. Um, but just, and you know, real live explosions and not yeah. CGI explosions is really, you know, it's fun. Big toys, man. Blow <laughs> yeah. stuff up for real. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So, okay. I think we've covered it. Have we covered it? Yeah, pretty good. Thank you, sir. Yeah, that was that was that was a fantastic uh, journey through your your sources. Your... Oh yeah, I didn't even get to the Japanese filmmakers. Oh, <laughs> that's your next trip back, part two. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ornis, thank you so much for thanks for uh, having me. Out, thanks for having me. This is this was actually a lot of fun. Thanks for being hot. Our show was recorded in Hollywood, California at Crossroads of the World. For the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.